Welcome to the Vine Podcast. This is Warren. And on today's episode, we are going to talk about mental health and some of the conversations that are related to mental health and, and mental illnesses and how we talk about those things and and discuss those things and deal with them in our in our culture and our churches and our families. And so I personally think that this is an important topic and I think also a timely and a relevant topic for, for various reasons that we'll get into over the course of our conversation today. And I'm pleased today to be joined by a couple of guests who I think are going to provide us with some great insight into this conversation. So first of all, I'm joined by one of our, our regular podcast contributors, Dr. Jason Martin. Welcome, Jason. Hi. We're, we finally got around to a topic that I might have some something interesting to say about <laughs> after over like a year and a half of doing this. We finally got to it. Here it is, yeah. your wheelhouse. So, and today we're also glad to be joined by a special guest, Dr. Daniel Moorhead. Hello, Daniel. Hey, Warren, Jason. Good to be here. Thank you. It's good to have you with us. Uh, so just a, as a little bit of an introduction for, uh, for Daniel, Dr. Daniel Moorhead is the Director of Psychiatry Training at Tufts University Medical Center in Boston. And for 20 years, he had a private practice in Austin where he was also the supervising psychiatrist at the Samaritan Center for Pastoral Counseling. But maybe more importantly to many of our listeners who might recognize the last name, uh, Daniel is the son of, of Marcia and Dave Moorhead, who are, of course, members here at Divine and valued members here, both of whom have lent their areas of, of wisdom and expertise to several of our conversations on the podcast and in classes and sermons. And so we've, we have learned much from the Moorhead family already and are looking forward to extending, extending that learning today uh, here with Daniel. Uh, we, we just won't stop talking, will we, Warren? <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> at least you have good and interesting and enlightening things to say when you talk. So that's good. Hope so. Uh, Daniel and his wife, Carol, have three sons, and Daniel serves as, as clergy at the Grace Episcopal Church that is uh, near Boston. And so we'll get into some of these other areas of, of expertise, but, but Daniel, in your bio, it also mentions that you enjoy hiking with your sons, studying Kung Fu, listening to music, and imitating a couch potato. And so before we get into other things, I, I want to talk just for a minute about imitating a couch potato. Like, does that involve watching TV, reading a book, or like, do you have a preferred activity for, for imitating a couch potato? It's, it's, you know, as little activity as possible. I, I'm not allowed to truly be a couch potato by my circumstances, but, but I am a truly, and this is not my parents' fault, by the way, but I'm a truly lazy person by nature. Um, so any of the above, I especially like listening to music, but also reading. Um, but I, I got into psychiatry. I remember the moment that I knew I was going to be a psychiatrist. I was in high school and I was thinking about all these jobs. I was thinking, okay, I'm going to get out of high school, hopefully go to college, but what am I going to do? I got to support myself or I'll be out on the street. And then I thought, well, I thought of all these jobs, you know, and like, well, that's a lot of work. Well, that's you know, coaching, that's outdoors, 100 degrees, I can't do that, right? Manual labor, you know, building a business. And then finally, I thought, well, you know what, if I were a psychologist or psychiatrist, I could just literally sit in a chair all day and listen to people. 
and I wouldn't have to do anything else. And I thought, I think I can do that. I can sit in an air-conditioned room and listen to people. And that was the moment that I thought, yep, that's what I'll do. That's great. I've, I don't know that I've had, I don't know that I've heard many people explain how they get into psychiatry, but I'm quite sure that's the first time I've heard that reason. So that's, but that's, that's good. There, there are more serious reasons, but <laughs> no, consciously that, that is literally how it came to mind. It's good. You know, we've been talking about the parables at our church and a few weeks ago, we talked about, there's a parable of the shrewd manager where at one point in the story, the guy says, I'm, I can't do manual labor. And so you reminded me of that. He's like, I'm, right. I'm too weak to do all this other stuff. And I'm, I'm too proud to beg. What am I going to do? So he's like, Oh, I know I got it. So, <laughs> so that's, yeah, there's some motivating factors there for, for in several uh, different directions, perhaps. Yep. Uh, okay. And so uh, as, as I talked about wanting to, to have this conversation, I mentioned it to Jason and, and I knew that I wanted Jason to be involved with us if he could with this conversation, just from his counseling background. But I didn't even know at that point, Jason, that you had mentioned this is a topic um, that you speak about a lot at conferences as far as just kind of the stigma around mental health. Is that accurate, Jason? Do I remember that accurately? Yeah. So <clears throat> I, I, through my education, but also through personal experience, I somewhat came to the conclusion that mental health uh, as some amount of struggle is something that I think everyone has to deal with at one point or another in their life, that no one is immune or, you know, lives very much life at all without having to at least consider, consider their mental well-being. And so a lot of times when I'm speaking um, mostly to uh, non-professional or non-clinical populations, the, just the general population, I always try to take a moment to sort of evangelize, if you will, uh, mental health care. And so what I tell people is that um, there is there's something really important about tending to your mental health care much in the same way that you tend to say your teeth or something like that. Um, and, I, and I use dentistry as kind of a, a parallel for this. You can have a problem with your teeth, a catastrophic crisis kind of moment with your teeth and you have to go to the dentist and they might have to pull a tooth, they might have to do a root canal, uh, they might have to do some reconstructive surgery and that, that is traumatic and it's difficult, but people kind of recognize when those moments come. But you also go to the dentist and mo for most of us, we're gonna be going to the dentist just as a regular course of life, you know, that either once a year or, or as they prefer, one, twice a year, just going for a general cleaning, x-rays, checkups, kind of seeing what's going on and cleaning everything out. And I think mental health care is a, and counseling in particular, is a good parallel to that. That it's it's a good idea just to go and talk to somebody who isn't someone, isn't a close friend or family member who have emotional investments in you, but is someone who can help you with the processes that you're going through. You know, a counselor, or a psychiatrist, a psychologist, they don't know the content of your life necessarily, but they know the processes of life and how things come about and thing and what things can be or potentially could be problematic. And, and and that's what I try to encourage people to do is that periodically 
go talk to a professional, someone who's trained in processes, and uh, and you're going to have questions about, you know, what's the next step of my life, or how do I understand this thing that happened to me, whatever that might be. And it's not to say, you know, the question I hear is, well, do I need counseling? And my answer to that is, well, maybe not, but I bet it could help. It certainly could. It, I, I'm sure it could help. And we don't want to wait until we need counseling. I don't want to wait to go to the dentist until I have to have a teeth, a tooth pulled or a cavity that's killing me or a root canal. I want to go to the dentist in order to prevent those things from really becoming major problems down the road. Um. And so that, that brings up maybe potentially several kind of directions to head with, with conversation. I want to come back to a couple of those things um, as we go through here. Um, but coming back to you, Daniel, I did want to spend maybe some time uh, thinking about talking about a, a book that you wrote, because I think that could also kind of help set up some other maybe directions of, of conversation. Uh, so you wrote a book entitled Science Over Stigma, Education and Advocacy for Mental Health. Uh, and I think this is a, a recent book that, that has been published. Is that right? When, when was this published? April. April. So it's very recent. Good. Yes. So I'm sure that's a good feeling to, to see all the yeah. work finally culminate in yep. a finished product. Yes. Yeah. April 2021 for future generations. But um, <laughs> yeah, I, I look at this book and it's, um, well, you, you can't see on the podcast, but it, it's not it's not that thick. And uh, Jason, well, probably both of you know about writing but I look at that and I'm like all the blood sweat and tears that went into that and the, for that little paltry thing mm-hmm. <laughs> so um I've yes. had that experience recently actually yeah like, oh my gosh I spent so much time and effort writing this and it so looks like many. a pamphlet yeah <laughs> yours, yours actually of, looks pretty good I, over I every over every word you know but yeah. uh, but there it is it it came into being so yes well, it's not like it's a light, a light subject that you could just no. throw some words at haphazardly. Uh, so, yeah, that, I think that makes complete sense. And so I wonder, can, can you start off just by telling us maybe a little bit about how the book came to be? What was kind of the genesis of it, the inspiration mm-hmm. of it for you wanting to undertake all that blood, sweat yep. and tears in order to, to get it together? Yep. So um, amongst the somewhat deeper reasons why I went into psychiatry was I think things along the lines that Jason alluded to and, you know, growing up with my mom, Marcia, being a therapist and my dad being a physician interested in that stuff. But um, just part of the idea was I just I just like the idea of knowing ourselves, exploring ourselves, working on our growth, working on our relationships. You know, I have had my own experience with getting down. Uh, with major depression and anxiety. So um, all of that was in my mind in a vague way. And as I went through psychiatry training um, and afterwards, the longer I did it, the really the more I liked it and the more I feel very, very blessed to be able to sit in my chair, but you know, to talk to people about what's most important in life. But I didn't really have... Um, well-formed ideas even about what I was doing. I just was watching carefully to see if it helped. You know, we'll try talk therapy, we'll try medicine, we'll try whatever and see what helps. So over time, I saw this research coming out uh, from the late 90s and beyond. And there would be studies here and there about how common mental illness was or, you know, that therapy really works for this, that or the other, or that, you know, 
depression is severe enough that you can compare it to, to like disabilities, like being blind or losing a limb. And I would see stories like that. And I would think, oh, that's weird. Or that's, you know, mental illness, that's more common than I thought. But I didn't start putting it together till um, maybe seven years ago or so. And my wife was having a mental health awareness uh, for one of the Sunday morning classes at the church where she was in San Antonio. It was a big church. And so she said, can you say a few things just, you know, in general about mental uh, health and mental illness? And it just clicked in my mind. I just realized all the research from, from years and years and decades of research was now in place that in a really straightforward, solid way, I can say mental illness is common. Mental illness is real medically and mental illness is treatable. And I can just lay out the case and it's crystal clear. And all these studies from all these different sources done for all these different reasons just fit together. So I was so excited and I came and I was ready to talk and there were, it was a big church and the, the attendance at the class event was three people, three people <laughs> showed up. So and it was like two of them were really late. So and there were like three speakers there. So, so we, you know, we were like outnumbering the audience. Um, but it was still, you know, it was still a good talk and something got a hold of me. And then uh, several months later, I was asked to go do, they were going to do a mental health and faith event in Tyler, Texas, which I'd never been to anything like that. And, you know, Tyler, Texas, way up in East Texas. And I said, well, you know, of course I'll be there. How many people you think will be there? And, and the organizer goes, well, you know, we're advertising pretty good, maybe a hundred or maybe up to 200. I thought, yeah, yeah, that sounds right. So I show up and at that event in Tyler, Texas in 2014, 800 people showed up on a Saturday morning and they packed the building and they had to turn people away because of the fire code that they were at capacity of the mm. building they rented. And this was a, con it, it was not to hear me, obviously, but it, it was, it was this conference on the subject and there was not only this huge group, but this energy um, that just galvanized me. And I thought, you know, clearly the time has come and I didn't even know it. Mm. And there's people are uh, at least enough people are ready for this and get mm. this. And so, and so from there, um, like Jason, I guess I've just, there's just been a lot going on. I've done a lot of speaking, most of it in Texas, but really all over the country. And, um, you know, it's not always 800 people are overflowing, but there's just an energy and a readiness. And, and, you know, I suppose if you're a person of faith, you might see the hand of God in the way that that readiness comes together with what we can, what we can tell people on a solid scientific basis, and also what we can offer people in terms of treatment and help. So it's just really cool. And I, I get excited when I think about it. And that's where the book came from. That's good. Yeah, it does. It feels like uh, just kind of from my very uneducated perspective that there is more of an openness to talking about conversations around mental health, mental illness. And that feels like a little bit of a shift in our culture. And, and so it's interesting to hear you kind of talk about it. It sounds like you kind of agree with that and are seeing that just in your own speaking engagement practice, whatever. And, and so I'm curious then to hear you say something about just how that, that it is common. 
I'm wondering if, do, do you feel like there is more openness for people to also say, not only do, do I recognize the, the, the maybe the, the commonality of it in the public, but, but are people, do you think, more ready and willing to recognize kind of the potential that, that they as individuals, that I as an individual may have for um, maybe some level of mental unhealth or mental illness or however you want to categorize, categorize that? Does that make sense? Because it seems like yeah. maybe that could be a shift that not only do I recognize the opportunity for it outside of myself, but I also recognize it more mm-hmm. inside of myself as yeah. well. Yeah, yeah, I I would be very curious about what what more of what you see and what Jason sees in this regard too. But I experience there there's kind of a disjunction or separation from people's levels of understanding or engagement with this. Um, we uh, you, you can't really know anything, as I find out as I get older. But as much as we can know things, we really have like great information on how common mental illness is, at least in the U.S. I mean, really, really huge, you know, uh, studies, multiple studies. The government repeats a giant study every year with thousands and thousands of people. And the numbers always come in the same, which is the, the number you hear is one in five every year. And that's right, except the government started leaving out substance abuse for some reason. So if you put in substance abuse, it's one in four. One people in four have some kind of true, not just life problems or getting stuck uh, developmentally or, or being really stressed, but a true, some kind of um, breakdown from the way they normally function. And then over the lifetime, that number approaches 50%. I mean, mm. it's just bizarrely uh, common meaning that it affects everybody because either you've had it or somebody you care about's had it, right? right? But then as our culture, I think really does take this in and it's sort of people, people get that it's the right thing to say, right? That, you know, oh yeah, mental health problems, they're real and we need to support people and it's okay and no problem with it at all. And I'm very accepting of it. Um, it doesn't look like a lot of our behaviors as a culture have changed mm. about it. So those same studies that are great studies that show how common it is have, have said for like over 25 years that about half of people with mental illness get treatment for it in any given year, like half, which if that was diabetes or cancer, we'd be scandalized, right? Mm. Um, so, and, and of the people that go in, I, I think about this, okay, so maybe 50% of the people that have it go in, um, as best we can tell, maybe up to 50% uh, actually make use of it or see their treatment through when they start it. And I think it may be less than that. So maybe half of the half really get decent treatment, right? Which is, you know, it's, it's a pain to get. So that has made me, you know, I was writing this book and I was thinking, God, it's getting, people are talking about this. It's getting more common. By the time this book comes out, it's all going to be old news and so <laughs> obvious. And there's, there's some truth to that. But the other part of the truth is everybody knows what to say, but it is not, it is not sunk in on sort of the reality level that this stuff is real, that the benefits, like Jason was saying, of counseling and other forms of treatment are real. They're physically, psychologically, socially, medically real, and that, and that the problems themselves, when they get to the level of being an illness, it's a real illness. It really hurts your body. It hurts your brain. It hurts your mind. It hurts your relationships. It shortens your life. 
And, and so even amongst psychiatrists, which I'm, I'm starting a new job where I'm helping train psychiatrists in a psychiatry department, even amongst psychiatrists, we're still not matter of fact about the way we deal with it, even amongst ourselves or even with like state medical boards that ought to know better. Um, most state medical boards don't even follow the federal guidelines of how, of, of, of how you're supposed to treat disabilities in regard to mental illness. So um, we know how to talk the talk now, and that's huge progress, but walking the walk is, you know, always harder. Mm. Yeah, I, th I think, um, man, that, that's probably true in a lot of areas of life. I think that that Seems there's to be, yeah, there's that level of recognizing it theoretically, but then actually implementing it seems more difficult. Yeah, that's good. Jason, you have any other thoughts on that? Well, I, I think that a few things have to happen in order for mental health care to be normalized and completely destigmatized. And I think we're probably through, or we are going through one of the early stages of that, which is just saying that when I observe other people, I'm not immediately going to judge them as a bad person because they're having, you know, mental health problems or because they're seeing a counselor or seeing a psychiatrist. Um, kind of that external judgment phase, there's less of that. But there's still that stigma around, well, that's fine for them, but not for me. And there's this, I think there continues to be this amount of shame that people have to overcome in order to seek out that treatment for themselves. And so there's this sense of, well, okay, maybe I am experiencing some level of depression or anxiety, but I can maybe point to things that are going on in my life that are contributing to that. And if I can just get rid of those things, get rid of that problematic person or that problematic job or that problematic life situation, then that will alleviate the depression or the anxiety. And there may be some truth to that, but there's also some truth in saying, uh, in suggesting rather, that there are probably other strategies or tools that could be used, even in the midst of that problematic person or job or life situation, that would greatly help. And I think it's that, it's that gap that we haven't quite crossed yet that <clears throat> among the general population that people can say, yeah, I am struggling with this. Well, but doesn't everybody struggle with it? And my answer to that is yes. And everybody should be seeking out some kind of help for those problems that everybody struggles with. Um, and, and until we get to that point, I think that that stigma is still going to stick around. I, I'm pleased with some of the advancements that have been made, even in my career. I mean, I've only been doing this for about 20 years now. And just in, in the course of those 20 years, um, I've seen a, a fair amount of progress in terms of destigmatizing mental health, but I see it mostly in terms, like I said, of being more accepting and less judgmental of other people who are seeking out mental health care rather than a readiness and a willingness for me to seek it out, you know, for the individual to seek it out. There's been some of that, but not nearly to the degree that, that I think we still need to see. Yeah. Can I piggyback on that? Yeah, go ahead. That'd be okay. Um, totally agree. 
and also it, it brings to mind, um, you know, I like the analogy of the dentist and taking care of your body. It makes me think of exercise, right? Mm-hmm. It's like, um, well, you know, I'm in decent shape. Why do I need to exercise? <laughs> well, no, we all understand. We, even if we don't do it, we need to exercise, right? And then if you have like a knee injury or surgery, something, then you, you need even more intensive, specific, you know, professional, like physical therapy. But even if you, even if you don't, uh, well, you know, personal trainer, why should I bother to see a personal trainer? Well, you don't have to. But, you know, for most people, it makes them do it and it, it helps them adjust their, their routine and what they're doing to their body and their needs and their state of health. Makes so everybody workouts just, a lot more efficient too. Yep, exactly. Exactly. So and for lazy people like me, that is all important <laughs> is efficient workouts. So, so I kind of think of mental health the same way. And in some cases, I'm, I have the privilege of being somebody's doctor when they are, I mean, they truly, they're so depressed, they can't get out of, bre- of bed, the brain isn't working right, it's taking a toll on their body. Uh, anxiety can be that bad, you know, schizophrenia. But then there are other people who maybe I'm kind of more of a, a, an analog of a personal trainer that they're basically healthy, but they have problems and challenges or they want to get better or stronger or more healthy. And like Jason was saying, the, the beauty of counseling especially is it's actually well proven for both. Um, that if you're dealing with an illness and you're not your normal self, it's actually really good, biologically powerful treatment. But if you're having life challenges or, you know, want to grow as a person, it's great for that. And to me, that's where the gravy is. That's where it really gets fun and interesting is when people aren't having to struggle just to function day to day, but are thinking about their own growth. And it's good for them physically. And I would say, I'd be interested to hear what you guys say, I would say it's good for us spiritually ultimately the more we work out our emotional baggage and live healthier lives so um yeah i'm with jason it's it's good for everybody and and it takes time and money and it's not accessible to everybody but yeah it's good in the way that exercise and a good personal trainer are good in my mind yeah i i want to touch on the 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 spiritual aspect of it in in just a minute but i want to come back too to something that you've mentioned a couple of times which is the the effect that our mental health has on our physical bodies and our physical health. And so I wonder if you can maybe talk some about that and and specifically maybe because I think a a lot of people are kind of in maybe in the place of, you know, I I think we would, many people would say that, you know, they're, they're stressed or worn out or tired. And those are all things that we maybe use as words to say, there are some mental things that I should probably be dealing with, but haven't fully, (laughs) haven't fully, um, dealt with in ways that I, I probably should have. Are there ways, what would you say are some ways that that shows up in our physical well-being that I may not recognize as being connected to what's going on mentally? So um, you're unleashing the beast here because it's hard for me to stop talking about things like this, mainly because I can't get over it how, how um, intricately interconnected we are as human beings, right? The spiritual, the mental, the, and the physical, and the social. But, okay, uh, on one level, all right, stress is normal, right? It's nor- we're supposed to be stressed in stressful situations. Um, but severe chronic stress will take a huge toll on the body, right? Blood pressure is higher. 
uh, inflammation gets and stays higher than is good for us. Stress hormones like cortisol get higher. Those make most people gain weight over time, although some people lose weight. Um, so it has big long-term effects. It's, it's been well studied since I was a kid in the 70s that chronic stress has effect on your heart health over time and your risk of heart attacks. But then if you, if you go beyond normal stress to true mental illness, like somebody has true major depression or true schizophrenia or true panic disorder, if you average out all, all mental illnesses, and again, that's one in four people every year, um, overall, if people have that mental illness chronically, it takes an average of 10 years off their lives. And in severe mental illness, it's closer to 20 years. I mean, it's just, it's staggering. And some of that is suicide, but most of it is not because it also turns out all those effects on your body, like the cortisol raising your blood sugar and the stress and the inflammation messing with every other part of your body. People have more risk for heart attacks, more risk for diabetes, um, maybe not more risk for cancer, but they do worse with cancer if, if they've already are dealing with mental illness. And so, uh, meaning here, here's a couple of examples. If you have chronic major depression, that bumps up your risk of diabetes by 40% right there. If you have, if, if you have heart disease already, but then you get depression on top of it, your risk of dying of a heart attack is doubled. And so some researchers, researchers have said it, it may not, not totally proven, but it may be comparable to smoking as far as how bad depression is for your health. And they're, you know, anxiety, bipolar, schizophrenia, they, they all do that. Uh, uh, and we know that to the extent that they've been studied. So these things are, they are no joke physically, not to mention how mentally impairing and anguishing they are. Yeah, I, I was just thinking about how any depression and anxiety always manifest themselves physiologically in some way. You know, if one of the first questions that we always ask people who come in to talk about anxiety is where do you feel it? Where do you experience it? And it's going to be in your shoulders or it's going to be in your gut or it's going to be in your jaw or it's going to be in your neck. Um, and same with depression, that a lot of people are going to feel their depression physiologically in some way. And if you're feeling it in, in a physiological way, then that has to tell you that it's having a physiological effect. Uh, because if, if, if I have this chronic, uh, consistent, ongoing anxiety, and that means that I am always having these muscles that are reacting and act, acting and reacting in concert with my anxiety, then those muscles are getting a kind of workout that they would not be getting otherwise. And in many cases, that's going to be a bad, in most cases, that's going to be a bad thing, uh, that it's being worked in a way that, the, that it's not going to be worked otherwise. And with things like depression, of course, depression is going to influence my motivation. It's going to influence my um, uh, energy level. And it's going to motive, it's going to impact how I choose to take care of myself. So just as a for instance, I'm going to be much more likely to eat foods and to uh, maybe even over drink uh, and drink alcohol to excess if I'm depressed. That 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 is something that 
is more prevalent among people with depression than who do not have depression. Um, and so that's going to contribute to my health and well-being. With anxiety, I may be looking for ways to distract myself from anxiety and maybe engaging in behaviors that are not entirely healthy that are going to contribute to um, or that, that may serve to temporarily distract me from uh, my anxiety. And so that's in addition to a lot of the physiological effects that, that Dan was talking about um, is, is just the way it contributes to uh, lifestyle decisions and, and, and habits of lifestyle that can be really problematic. And so if, if that's kind of some of the physical ramifications, I know, Daniel, you also mentioned kind of this, this spiritual aspect of it. And so we are, we are a, a podcast through a church. And so let's, uh, let's kind of approach that aspect of it from a, a believing Christian kind of standpoint. Um, what, do, what do you see as the ramifications there? And, and is there a spiritual formative aspect of paying more attention to our to our mental health and well-being. So, um, who knows all the answers about this subject? Perhaps Jason does. <laughs> I know I don't. Not at all. Not at all. Uh, but you know, of course, of course, I have lots of thoughts because that's you know, it's it's at the center of my life. Uh, you know, mental health and also spirituality and my faith. Um, and, and there's 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 also, I think, mind-blowing research in this area, too, that, uh, for instance, um, uh, being a religious person and being part of your faith community, like part of your church, in our case, for us Christians, is hugely powerful for your physical and mental health. People live longer. They have less disability. They're less they're less vulnerable to all kinds of physical and mental illnesses, including heart health and blood pressure, but also major depression and addiction and anxiety. So, uh, so okay, why? Well, um, you know, the, the knee-jerk reaction, and I think why for a long time these studies, and there's thousands of them that have piled up now, but these studies were resisted for a long time because it sounded like saying, oh, it's like some miracle. It's like God says, you went to church and Warren, you're a good boy, so you are not going to get that cancer. This person, this bad person who didn't go to church will get cancer. But, um, but that is not what they are actually researching, and that is not the thought behind the research. The thought behind the research is if, if, it's, if there's a religious thought, it's, well, maybe we're made to be in a certain kind of relationship with God and each other. Mm. And maybe if we do that... That goes with what we are, we are made to be and that, that religious life and spiritual life has all these elements in it that are just good for you on every level. It's, it's saving your soul, but it's not just saving your soul, right? And so there, there are studies, not enough of them on prayer, but there, there, there's an interesting array of studies on prayer and then a lot more on meditation, which is kind of a fad right now in, in mental health. But um, that show that when you do those things, it's good for your stress level, it's good for your blood pressure, less stress, you're more optimistic, you're less irritable, you focus better. I mean, the list goes on. And that's prayer and meditation. And I, I suspect, although I don't know that it's proven as directly, that, that worship is the same way. You mm -hmm. know, I, I come to church, um, usually I'm stressed when I 
when I get there, because I had to, you know, get up and get ready. And if I got family to get there, I'm really stressed. It takes me a while just to calm down. But eventually, I'm just sitting there. The music's washing over me, the prayer. I'm slowing down. I'm decompressing. And I'm getting less stressed. And I, and I think about what's really important in life and how much I have to be grateful for and what's really a good, happy, healthy life. And so, um, and so we know that a good spirituality is part of a good, healthy life, even though at the same time, we also know, look, um, something like mental illness, major depression or schizophrenia or whatever it is, is not a spiritual problem. It's not a sin. It's not because you did it wrong spiritually. Everyone gets sick. Yeah, your chances of getting depressed are lessened by, by having a spiritual and religious life, but everybody gets sick. And that's a normal thing that we take as normal physically, and we need to take it as quote unquote normal mentally in the sense it's just going to happen. And it doesn't mean people did anything wrong. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. So you, everybody can get a cavity, even if you take perfect, wonderful care of your teeth. Everybody can get a cold. Everybody can get a flu, even if you've done everything right, gotten all your vaccinations and, uh, you know, you know, wear a mask and you've done everything you needed to do, you can still get sick. You're right. I, I think the only thing I might uh, add to that additionally is that, um, well, there, there are a lot of benefits that we gain from our faith life, particularly uh, not just from our engagement with a religious community, although I, do, I think that that's very helpful. Honestly, I think my continued and ongoing connection with my religious community is directly tied to the fact that I it, it helps build me up, you know, not just spiritually but emotionally and mentally as well. That that's a that's a major component to why I feel like remaining part of a religious community is is very important. But also the things like that we learn and and that are reinforced in being part of a faith life. So. Uh, you know, we had Richard Beck come and speak to our church, uh, you know, before the pandemic. And and one of the things that really struck me and, and that I've really taken to to heart is and I, this is something I knew cognitively, but just hadn't really put together is the notion of gratitude and how important that is for our mental health, for, you know, the greatest uh, predictor or the greatest uh, strategy, if you will, to achieving happiness or joy, however you want to define that, is gratitude. That people who are grateful um, are more likely to just have a positive outlook and a, and, and a positive experience in life. And I don't know a better way to develop gratitude than through the faith that recognizes that everything we have comes from God. You know, that kind of gratitude is directly tied to um, to humility, which is also another, uh, in, in, you know, in proportion, a, a positive uh, contributor to mental health and mental well-being. Um, and I don't know of a better way to really develop those skills and develop those traits of gratitude and humility and as well as those aspects of um, self-care and and really knowing that you are beautifully and wonderfully made and you are loved by God. I mean, all of that kind of stuff 
in my mind, is not to say that it's exclusively gained through faith, but man, faith is a huge, a huge component to be able to develop those traits. Yeah, I totally agree. You're reminding me of a study that they, they did. They started before 911 and it got interrupted and changed by 911. So when it was actually people in the New York City area and they were studying positivity like gratitude and finding meaning. Um, and uh, they tested all these people and then a big subset of them were involved in 9-11 and the actual disaster. And so they followed them out for years afterward. And it turned out that the people who were able to find positivity and gratitude and meaning in what they were going through, even the traumas, had a lot less depression and anxiety and did much better overall than people who didn't. And wouldn't you know, people who are more religious were significantly more likely to do that, just the way Jason was talking about. So, yeah, I couldn't agree more. So it's, it sounds like kind of one something that y'all are both kind of saying is that there are things that in the religious kind of communities we would call spiritual disciplines that that actually have a great potential for impact on our on our mental well-being as well and one one that i love sorry to interrupt because i don't i haven't followed much about this but is fasting i'm a terrible Mm. faster um i'm low energy and achy already but um but you know fasting 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 it's in the bible you know it goes back thousands of years suddenly on the internet what a few years ago People are just like ecstatic. I've discovered fasting. Man, this is unbelievable. <laughs> this is amazing. And there's this mania for fasting like that we've had for thousands of years. But we discovered it. Yeah. For mental health benefits, like people fasting, having nothing to do with, you know, uh, spiritual purity or anything like that it has everything to do with the mental health benefits to it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, as each of you were talking about gratitude, it reminded me that that's something that Marcia has actually helped me to see the benefits of. But, you know, Daniel, as you were saying earlier, we, sometimes we, um, we know things cognitively, but struggle to, to put them into practice. And that's certainly one of those things that I do, I do well with that in spurts and in seasons keeping a gratitude journal and, and kind of focusing on and things like that. And then something will interrupt that routine or that habit and I'll fall out of it. And, and so I struggle to implement it well all of the time, but I, but I, um, I cognitively think it's great. And occasionally I, I do that in practice as well, but it, it's one of those things that I, you know, I see the benefits of it when I do it and then just life gets in the way and happens and fall out of it. And then something will kind of kick me back into it. And I'll say, oh yeah, I need to be doing those things that I saw benefit to and, and just somehow got out of the habit of, of pursuing. Cause we have to pursue those things intentionally. It takes, mm-hmm. it takes work and it takes not scrolling on my phone as long or not, not imitating a couch potato to, to the extent that I may want to, or whatever it is that we just kind of fall into that don't take intentionality and, and purpose. Well, you know, you remind me about the, the importance and the, and even the necessity of intentionality when it comes to happiness and mental well-being. I think a lot of people assume, well, um, you know, if I, if I just live my life and good things happen to me, and then I'll feel good about them and bad things will happen to me and bad things will happen. Well, well, and I'll feel bad about them. And, and that's true. You know, that's not incorrect, 
But I think it's incomplete. I think there's more to it than that. That uh, in many ways, how we feel, uh, there is a deliberateness that has to go into that. So especially if I know myself well. So if I know that I may have a tendency for depression or I may have a tendency for kind of, uh, as I call it, falling into myself just kind of navel gazing and and just kind of woe is me and you know some people are like that and that and you know that's not a you know to kind of go back to what we were talking about earlier that's not a a character flaw necessarily um, but that is something that I need to be if that's me then I need to be mindful about that in myself I need to be observing of myself and making choices that maybe can counteract that or that uh, you know maybe it's to where you know what, I am a little bit, I, I recognize that I'm a little bit depressive. And when I'm a little bit depressive, I want to isolate myself. And that sends me down a spiral. And, you know, I have this friend or a family member who's wanting me to go out with them this evening or wants me to have dinner with them or, you know, wants me to go with them to this event. Um, my first instinct is to say, no, I don't want to go or to find some way to get out of it. Maybe because I know this about myself and I know that I have this depressive tendency and maybe because I know that I, you know, have a tendency to spiral downward and that starts with self-isolation, that I need to take some action to counteract that. And that's not to say that being alone is a bad thing, but if I know myself, then I have to know when being alone is good and when being alone is not good. And maybe I need to take that initiative. I need to be proactive in counteracting my depression. And so I need to be intentional about, uh, yeah, I don't really feel like going to this event with this friend or this family member, but I'm going to do it anyway because I know it's in my mental well, uh, my, my best interest, my mental health best interest. Um, the same goes for like deciding how am I going to view this situation? So if I know about myself that I have a tendency to take things personally and to see things that don't go well as, well, somebody was trying to do something to hurt me, to harm me. Well, if I know that, that, that that's my tendency, then I may need to intentionally and deliberately think, well, maybe there is another alternative explanation. And maybe I need to discuss that with somebody. If not a counselor, then maybe I need to discuss that with a trusted friend or, uh, or confidant. Um, and, and think about how am I viewing my life on a day-to-day -day basis? Those things are uh, take effort. It takes intentionality. It's like going to the gym to, to stay in shape. It's like going to the dentist to make sure that my... Uh, my teeth, you know, don't get gum disease and, and all sorts of problems associated with them. It's intentional. It's something I have to do regularly. And, you know, sometimes I am going to fall out of the habit and that's when I'm going to, you know, regret it and go, ah, shoot, I fell out of the habit again. Well, let's get back on the horse. Let's, let's, let's do it the way we know to do it. And a lot of that begins with knowing yourself, knowing what your uh, what your risk factors are, personal, uh, you know, down to the minutia kind of risk factors and, and learning how to counteract those and learning how to anticipate those. Yep. Yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll agree with that. And just, I'll be quick here. Cause I know there's other stuff to cover, but, um, just add another layer that, um, 
totally agree about knowing our tendencies and our bad habits and nurturing our better habits. Um, and, and there's a difference between a tendency to depression and being in depression. And I know because I have both. Mm. Um, and my parents love to tell the story of like, I, I was totally like scowling and unhappy the first 13 months of my life. And nothing made me smile until supposedly they gave me ice cream. And then my face lit up for the first time ever because ice cream, you know, life wasn't all bad. So I know I have that temperament and I have to fight negativity every day mm. of my life. I have to try to get my head straight. Uh, and that's part of my prayer life and part of my, my mental health um, things that I do. But also when you're in a depression, if your mind is in that state, it's not your fault. Your mind is in a state where you can't will yourself out of it. So there's things you can do. You got to fight. You're fighting for your life. You got to get help. You got to reach out. You got to see professionals, but it's not your fault. And people with mental illness, because of the stigma, tend to be, like Jason said, ashamed and presume it's their fault, or I had a bad attitude, or I didn't do it right, and everybody else did. No, everybody has a bad attitude. Everybody's got to fight a bad attitude in their own age in their own way. And the fact that you got mental illness doesn't mean you had a worse attitude than somebody else, but it does mean you got to be all over your attitude because you can't afford to have a negative attitude all mm -hmm. the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that's probably, I think that's especially important in a Christian context because, you know, we can talk about the benefit of spiritual disciplines and things like that, but there are times when other outlets or resources are needed. Um, and that, Maybe, you know, that, that if someone is depressed, um, you know, there needs to be more of an answer to it than, than, than prayer time. Yeah. You know, maybe there is a counseling answer that's needed there or medicine answer or whatever it is. And, and pursuing those doesn't mean that you, you don't have enough faith or that you're not a good enough Christian or that you're just not praying hard enough. Um, that as we've talked about with physical things, you, if you broke your leg, you wouldn't say, well, I'll, I'll just kind of pray, pray harder tonight. No, you would go see a doctor. And, and I, I feel like that's sort of a stigma that I don't think it's as much of a stigma now, luckily in, in Christian context, but if there is one, that's, I think that's where, where we still need to encourage people to, that, that pursuing help and pursuing other resources doesn't, doesn't mean you are somehow lacking in faith. And I think it's also a reminder to, to, to be sure to extend grace to other people because we don't know whatever. I, I, I always think about years ago, I was at a different church in a different capacity, but um, I was leading this effort and was relying on volunteers to help me with this initiative. And I had one woman that I had really grown to depend on and that uh, she would do a great job, but then all of a sudden she just kind of fell off the face of the earth in many ways. And I just, you know, I couldn't rely on her. She'd say she'd be somewhere and then she wasn't. She'd say that she would get something done and then she didn't. And I, I got really upset and, and irritated and just like, well, you know, what, what is, I, I, I need, you said you were going to do this and you're not doing it. So what's the deal? Well, turns out she had struggled with depression depression and had and was in the middle of a pretty severe uh depressive episode and i didn't know that of course um but a few other people around me did and that's how i came to find out but it kind of hit me like a ton of bricks 
I don't know what's going on inside another person's head. I don't know what's going on inside another person's body, um, especially if, and this, this is the kind of woman who, you know, they always have a smile on their face. And, you know, turns out, it, you know, a lot of times she was masking a lot of what she was going through. And, uh, and I felt just very convicted in that moment that privately I was judging her and I was getting irritated with her. Um, but if I had only known what she was really going through, that would have made a big difference. And the fact of the matter is we're never always going to know. You know, especially if you're looking at what people post on like social media, Facebook and Instagram, people are usually putting their best moments out there. Um, and and so we always have to and, and that kind of showed me I have to always be willing and eager to extend grace to people, you know, and to always take a step back if I assume to know what their quote unquote deal is, because there's very often when I don't. And so because of that, uh, we, we have to be more gracious and forgiving and loving towards people, whether they have or they're, whether they're struggling with mental health issues or not, because we never know what their circumstances are. We don't know what their life uh, has been like up to that point. And so, you know, God would show them grace. Jesus would show them grace. And therefore, so should I. Yep, couldn't agree more. Some some guy somewhere said, "Don't judge others." I can't remember who it was, but yeah. but I think what you just if said. Only somebody had written it down, huh? Yeah, I know. Yeah. I don't know why haven't I heard that before? But uh, for me, it's 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 like for you, uh, understanding what you said is powerful. If something negative is coming from somebody, there's reasons for it. Reasons beyond what I can imagine. I would probably see that person in a totally different way if I knew. And so I am not in a position like God to truly know and love them and, and judge them. I just get the love part. Yeah. And it, and sometimes we say, well, do they deserve grace or do they deserve forgiveness? And, and my answer to that is that doesn't matter. Well, first of all, that's not for me to decide anyway. And second of all, it doesn't matter. It's my job to give that grace and that forgiveness to them. Yeah. Very good. I want to hit a couple of things quickly before we wrap up here. And, you know, I think, as I said at the top, I think this is a timely and relevant conversation for a few reasons. One of which is just, I think there are a lot of these conversations that many of us probably see in a different light or that hit a little differently post pen or not even not post pandemic. We're still in it. But now that the pandemic kind of in, in a, in a COVID world, I think a lot of these things have probably come to the surface more in, in different ways for different people. And we've had to wrestle with things in ways that we haven't at, at any other part in our life. And so we could do a whole episode probably about the ways that the pandemic has had an effect and impact on mental health and, and mental health awareness and all that. And so we, I don't want to jump into that now at this point, but um, hopefully some of this, the rest of the conversation uh, speaks to a lot of those, those areas as well. But I do want to touch briefly on, on a situation that, that kind of came up last week at the Olympics, because I know, you know, the, the, the circumstances around Simone Biles really, it seemed kind of pushed mental, mental health back into the forefront of kind of cultural conversation and, 
and topics that were trending on social media and, and all that. And, you know, I mentioned, I, I talked about her and my sermon a little bit yesterday, and, and I shared a tweet uh, that she had posted last week uh, where she said, the outpouring of love and support I've received has made me realize I'm more than my accomplishments and gymnastics, which I never truly believed before. Um, and I just thought that was a powerfully uh, tragic statement on one hand, um, and relatable standpoint, I think on one hand, that's, you know, what I shared in the sermon was that I, I recognize, I have no idea what it's like to be Simone Biles, but, but I could connect with that idea of tying, tying your worth and, and, and value to performance of a task, um, or, or connecting your, your kind of self-worth to the approval of others, things like that. And so I, I just, I felt incredibly sad for that, that she had been in that state, but also felt like, man, if that was an outcome of, 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 of all of that, that she was able to, to realize that that's not where her value came from, then, then hopefully that's a good and positive outcome of, of that situation. And so I'm curious just to kind of spend a little bit of time there, because I think, you know, we've been talking about how culturally, how things like mental health and mental illnesses are discussed. And I think we've kind of seen... Um, We've seen all of that over the course of the last week as people have discussed everything she went through and the responses to that. And I did personally feel like, you know, while you do see a lot of negative responses, it did feel like there were a lot of understanding and empathetic and positive responses. Um, and, and I'm glad that she felt that way and, and felt that there was an outpouring of love and support. But I'm curious just if either of you had a, had a kind of thought of what you've seen from her or the response to her uh, or, or anything that's kind of go on, going, gone on surrounding Simone Biles and all that over the last week or so. I tell you these, you know, oh man, I've tried to just sign off on so many of, of our, our public controversies because first of all, nobody's really waiting for my opinion until they form their own. But secondly, um, we just don't know, right? Like Jason was saying about judging, we don't know what somebody's been through. And uh, we don't know where somebody's really coming from. And we can't judge from a few quotes or seeing somebody on TV. And all we can do, I think, is try to have compassion. Like, what if, what if for my whole life, um, how I would be judged for my success came down to two weeks and how I performed as a young person? And yeah. me as a young person, I knew nothing. <laughs> Yeah. Or if you get to go to two Olympics, that's four weeks, you know, like define your life. I, I could, I know I couldn't handle that kind of pressure. And so I'm not in a position to judge anybody. And then furthermore, then I looked up the interviews and I'm like, well, what is she actually saying? So I asked my wife who's in ministry who keeps up with this more. And so she sent me transcripts of the interview and I read the transcripts and it's like, well, what is she saying? I mean, she's talking about, you know, her mentality and mindfulness. Um, but I, I, as much as I could gather, she was trying to protect her privacy, which I think we should always support people in doing, no matter how famous they are. And then she was just saying, I needed to do this for my mentality. And if it was a mental illness, then that gets into the realm of can't. Your brain and body just aren't in their normal state. And if it's not, if it's severe stress and something she needs to do to protect her health, then again, I don't know how you can blame somebody for it. Mm -hmm. And uh, if it's a case of somebody just blowing things off, it's, I mean, 
that would be a problem. But again, it's, it's hard for me to imagine, hey, you know, you work your whole life, your whole life, right. literally, literally, every waking moment is centered around this. And okay, now here's your chance. And eh, never mind. It's just hard for me to imagine that. But you know, right. I don't know. Yeah, very true. Um, yeah, well, that was, you know, I'd been thinking about having this conversation as a, as a podcast episode for a while. And then when that happened last week, that was just the that was the the kind of impetus for me to say, all right, we let's let's do it. Let's do it now, because I think it's it's a uh, it's a conversation that that we need to be engaging more openly anyways. And so I thought this may be a, a, a good time to do so. Uh, so, okay, a couple of questions to get us out of here on. And so, Daniel, if you've got a thought on this that, that you could express briefly, I'll, I'll maybe ask you to do it. But you, you mentioned, going back to your book for a minute, you mentioned kind of all the blood, sweat, and tears that went into it. Was there, a, was there a part of the book or kind of a topic in the book or anything that you found brought out the most blood, sweat, and tears? Like, was there part of it that was just the most difficult either to write or research or, or anything like that as you went about putting it together? Uh, well, yes, whatever page I was on at the time. But, <laughs> but, but then just briefly, uh, the part that affected me the most was when I, I and, and I, I had the outlines of what I was going to write about, but the more I got into treatment, and this, is, this includes talk therapy as well as medicines and other kinds of treatment. Um, you know, we have this image of doctors, like you get a broken leg, they set it and put a cast on it. You get a cut, they sew it up and fix it. You get an ear infection, they give you antibiotics. Boom, that's being a real doctor. You know, and we can't cure, we can't, we don't really have cures for mental illnesses. So we're not, you know, is this real medical care? when you see a therapist or a psychiatrist? And the answer is yes, because I realize we're comparing to apples to oranges. We're not comparing, these mental illnesses are chronic illnesses, right? And that doesn't compare to a cut that gets sewn up. That compares to like having heart disease or having diabetes or having high blood pressure. So you know what? We can't cure high blood pressure. We can't cure heart disease. We can't cure diabetes. We can't cure asthma. We can't cure all these chronic illnesses but when you line it up and look at it medically, the treatments that we have, medicine, but just as much talk therapy, they are as effective for chronic illnesses as any other specialty. So your treatments for mental health, if you compare it apples to apples, it's good, solid, realistic treatment. And so nobody needs to be in despair about it. And, and I realized writing that I have been pretty skeptical of my own uh, profession until I actually got into the nuts and bolts and we're, we're far from perfect. We need cures. But again, compared to other parts of medicine where people don't say, oh, what's the point of getting my diabetes treated? They can't cure it. For some reason we say, oh, what's the point of getting my bipolar treated? You know, they'll just throw medicines or psychobabble at me. No, thousands of studies show that this, the treatment is as real as the illness. That's good. And so, so if someone picks up your book and, and reads it, is there sort of a, I, I don't want to assume that you would kind of have the outcome of someone in mind, but is there, so what, what would you hope that someone would oh, kind of get, get from your book or take from it if, if they were to pick it up and read I, it? I sure do have a fantasy about that, although Go, I don't expect it to come true. What would it, what would it <laughs> number one, if you deal with this stuff, you're not alone. Just like Jason mm-hmm. said, you're not alone. Number two, if you deal with this stuff, you're not making it up. You're not whining. You're not doing it wrong. It's a real life 
thing that's medically and psychologically real. And then number three is there's actually help. You're not hopeless. That's good. And to close us out today, I want to talk, well, first of all, so if, if someone wanted to buy your book, is there, I know, I know it's available on Amazon. Is there a preferred place that you would send them to, to, to purchase your book? Um, wherever they can get it. And um, it's, uh, boy, I shouldn't say this, but it bothers me that it's, it costs more money than I wanted it to because <laughs> it's a professional publisher. Mm. But if somebody can't afford it, I really want them to like, I mean, if it's Canyon Creek related or sorry, the Vine related, just, you know, contact my parents. I'll, I'll, I'll find a way to get you a cheaper copy. But if, if, if you're, if God has blessed you so much, you can afford to buy my book. Yeah. Amazon is, is good. And the publisher has a website, American Psychiatric, but it's the same price. Okay. And we'll put some info about that in the description of the episode. Beginning, it's called Science Over Stigma, Education and Advocacy for Mental Health. And so to kind of close us out then today, I'm, I'm curious if, if either of you were to give people advice on something they could do to prioritize their mental health. We've talked about some of those over the course of this conversation, whether it's seeking counseling, uh, reading Daniel's book, um, pursuing gratitude with, with intentionality, uh, having grace towards other people. These are all things that, that I think, you know, hopefully if someone's listening, they, they could be picking up on those if, as we've gone. Is there anything else you would add to that or practices that are helpful for either of you as it comes to, to prioritizing your mental health? Well, I'll go ahead and respond first and let Daniel have the last word, but I, I speak, I, this is primarily aimed at people who are not necessarily struggling with chronic mental illnesses, are not in the, in the throes of depression or anxiety or something like that, but just, you know, people that might consider themselves, you know, average mental health people, <laughs> I, I guess, like, uh, not, not people who are necessarily interested or have a a particular desire to see a, a therapist or a counselor or a psychiatrist, but just the general population. What I would suggest is train yourself to look for the good in the world, the good in people. And that especially goes for people that may be difficult to see the good in them. Uh, but look for the good in situations when you're in a problematic or a difficult situation. How can I use this for good? I think Jesus did that a lot. Uh, he often looked for the good in people. He looked for the good in situations. And I think that that's a model for overall po uh, healthy mental health is looking for positive. Now, that's not to say that we don't pay attention to risk. We don't, that, uh, I think we should pay attention to risk. We should pay attention to uh, danger that may come our way, but, but we can't let that be the dominant uh, perspective that we take. So looking for the good in ourselves, I think that's another thing that often gets lost is looking for, you know, what can I be proud of? What can I be uh, you know, be, what can I celebrate in me and in who I am? So looking for the positive in life, in situations, in environments, in settings, in other people and in ourselves. I think if you ask for one, one thing that I think everybody could do that would serve them well, that would probably be the one thing. Um, 
Mine would be close, but but more of a, I guess, a practice and a habit than the than um, uh, anything specific that goes into it. But mine is um, for physical, mental, and spiritual health. Mine is quiet time every day, um, just sitting and being with ourselves and being with God alone. And not having a bunch of words, not doing hardcore study, you know, maybe reading a verse or two and just sitting with it or saying a psalm and sitting with it or um, just being with God or saying the Lord's Prayer and waiting a while where we slow down and let ourselves slow down and open up to whatever God's agenda is. And I don't know why that's so powerful. I mean, I know a lot of little reasons, but I don't know the big reason. It feels like I'm doing nothing or wasting time or I'm doing it badly because my mind's bouncing around everywhere. But I, I don't think there's any practice or habit to have that will change life like that one and will set us up for what direction we need to go and what attitude we need to have to change whatever else needs to be changed. Mm, that's good. It feels like we're being unproductive, but in reality, it's it's doing something very productive within us. It's the difference between what is urgent and what is important. That kind of thing is, is very rarely, maybe never urgent, but it is extremely important. And we have to tend, tend more intentionally uh, pay attention to those things that are not urgent but important because they're the things that are easy to lose and we suffer when we lose those things. Yeah, you know, I've, I've, I've often said we, we wear busyness as a badge of honor. Uh-huh. And we, want, we want people to know how busy we are, how, how packed our schedules are, what, how productive we are. But a lot of these things do boil down to, to slowing down, uh, to being intentional about some of this stuff. And, and I hope that in some ways the pandemic has helped us to do that. I think at its, maybe at its best, it has helped some of us to slow down. But maybe maybe not with with intentionality, and maybe not in ways that will last. But hopefully, yeah. hopefully, it has at least encouraged that with within some of us to to pay attention to that. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, Daniel, I, I really appreciate you taking this time with us, and it's been been great to to get to know you a little bit and to to hear uh, your perspective and, and your expertise on this area. So, th- thank you for for taking some time to to spend with us today. Hey, my pleasure. Great to talk to you guys. Yeah, it's, it's been, a, been a pleasure for us. And thank you, Jason, of course, you, you as well. But I get to talk to you all the time. So Yeah. Well, this, like I said at the beginning, this is a topic that I feel a little bit more uh, prepared to speak on. And uh, something I, uh, I mean, we've talked about things that I feel passionately about, but this is definitely one of those topics that I feel passionately about. And, well, I'm, I'm uh, glad that it worked out for you to be able to, to yeah. join us as well. So. All right. Well, we, Daniel, we typically close close out in prayer. So I'm gonna I'm gonna close us to to bring our our episode to a close today. So let's pray. My Father in heaven, we are grateful for uh, for your love for us and for the ways in which you work in our lives and and for the ways in which you have equipped us to to be intentional about about our well being, about our our mental, our physical, our spiritual well being. Uh, help us, God, to see the ways in which we can best live into uh, to the best versions of ourselves that you have uh, have called us toward. Uh, and God, help us to to not only be aware of the things that we could do, uh, but to pursue those 
whether those be spiritual disciplines, whether they be conversations with those around us, conversations with the counselor, uh, but help us, God, to, to have the, the wherewithal, the wisdom, the courage, the strength, the faith uh, to, to pursue those things well and, and to, to honor your, your desire for us to live fully into who you've created us to be by valuing our, our mental health and well-being. Uh, thank you, God, for, for people like Jason and Daniel who have devoted time and energy into this area of research and into um, to helping others uh, to be able to, to pursue mental health. And, and we're grateful that, that they and others have um, been a part of destigmatizing conversations around mental health and, and mental illnesses. And we pray that will only continue in, in our culture, in our churches, in our families, and within our own hearts and minds and, and ways of, of thinking about these things. We're grateful for Jesus and, and for everything that, that he has done for us and continues to do amongst us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Amen.